I truly believe that the people who get the most benefit out of our program are the ones who are willing to look in the mirror. And sometimes that mirror, when they first enter the program, is is really fogged and they don't even know it. And they've, they've got a view of themselves that is far from the reality of the view that others have. And we push one another to to challenge their assumptions about themselves and about the world around them. And we push one another, the cohort, to speak to one another about how they view, how their uh, actions and their uh, behavior is is kind of seen. And, and, and they learn to lead in a different way if they're willing to look in that mirror and say, hmm, you know, maybe I... You know, as as one of our professors in the program, Rob Rhodes, used to say, don't be a jerk, right? Welcome to Winning Strategies Playbook, the podcast where we welcome business leaders, CEOs, and industry experts to discuss the rise to the top, building wealth, and real estate insights. Here's your host, Jeremy Spann. Welcome to Winning Strategies Playbook. For more information on this podcast, you can go to myexperiencedrealtor.com. That's experience with an ED at the end of it, myexperiencedrealtor.com. You can move over to the button that says podcast. Click on that. You can learn more about the show, the different podcasts. You can download it on Spotify, Amazon. You can, there's all the different platforms, YouTube, if you want to watch my uh, pretty face on YouTube. And, and of course, you know, if you're looking to buy or sell real estate anywhere on the planet, need some guidance, you can always click on the find a trusted professional on the homepage. But when you click on that podcast section, you can get to learn and read more about my fabulous guest, Suzanne Carter. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Jeremy. Good to be here. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to come out here and share some wisdom to the listening and viewing world. But before we uh, do any of these, my father-in-law says I got to do a joke. And so (laughs) since he's mandated this, when I decided to start this show, I purposely do bad jokes. So if you don't laugh, then that's okay. And if you do, you have a really good sense of humor. So I figured with the remote learning recent things in the last year and a half, I thought this joke would be a little funny. Is why are the why are why were the teachers cross-eyed during their remote class session? I don't know, Jeremy. They couldn't control their pupils. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say that's pretty good because I appreciate that. One. Right. <laughs> So, and we're going to come back and dive into this to, to, you know, the, you know, for the audience out there that does not know this is, is I did my MBA at TCU at TCU's executive MBA program where Suzanne and I met. She is the executive director of the program when I went through. It started in 2013, finished in 2014. And anyhow, the, there's, I'm sure been a lot of things in the past 18 months that have been really interesting to deal with from that uh, perspective. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Just just like the rest of the world, we had to adapt. And it was a question of, you know, what what was important to us and what 
could we do to uh, most effectively continue to teach? And, and, you know, one of the things was, you know, I, I kind of felt like we were in, in a theater where they say no matter what happens, it's important to keep going. And so, I mean, we were one of the – we were the first program at TCU to continue – once we went into lockdown, we just started right up into our regular system, but we were online only. And our faculty just jumped right on board. They were the first ones at TCU to do so. And the students learned to adapt to that different uh, way of teaching. And And then as soon as we had the opportunity to get back in the classroom, we did so. Of course, social distanced, wearing masks, and what we would call a hybrid format where some of the students who were comfortable being in the room and the faculty, they they would be together. And we had others that were remote. And, and we, to this day, have students that are remote, but we also have the classroom intimate experience that, that we really, really know is, is a big part of our culture and makes us who we are. So one of the goals or mission statement of the TCU's executive MBA is building strategic leaders, right? And, uh, and, and strategy you know, is is not something that's just always long played, right? You got to roll that's with right. the punches and and figure out what we do in situations like when a pa- global pandemic hits us, right? And and one of the unique things I that I found that I really enjoyed about the executive MBA at TCU was the professors weren't just career academia, right? And uh, these are professors with multiple layers of education, but also multiple years of experience out in the business world. Yes. You know, having the opportunity to take that experience and the context in which they worked and then also kind of marrying it with the theoretical frameworks that we use, I think that that has always provided a very rich environment for learning. And our faculty understand the importance of that. And, you know, continue even in their academic world, they continue to do consulting and some have their own businesses as they go through, you know, as they, as they continue down the academic path. And I think that that really shows with the students. One of the, one of the important things in our uh, classroom with executives as part of the cohort is that everyone is learning from one another. And so you have to have the faculty that understand the practical nature of business and the importance of, of really thinking through um, all of the avenues and having all of the multiple perspectives in the room make a big difference to the learning objective in the classroom. One of the things that our faculty do is they make assignments that are real-world based. So it's not a theory it's a, a personalized approach to really getting the most out of the coursework. So you can have, you can have a particular class that <clears throat> actually has, like, for instance, in our data analytics class, where you can use your own financial statement data from the company that you work for, that, that data, and, and use those data sets to analyze, say, entering into a new market or, or a competitive analysis as opposed to just doing strictly case-based work. 
Or like as Mo made sure we did was a lot about pizza. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think pizza came up a lot in your class. So for the audience, I've had a restaurant over in Arlington for the last 10 years called Old School Pizza Tavern. If you're ever in the area, you definitely need to go visit. But we used the financials out of that because actually one of the interesting things that I learned when I came into the program is, so the program is every other weekend, Friday, Saturday, 8 to 5, where 8 to noon is one class, go to lunch, and then 1 to 5 is the next class, and you do that Saturday and Sunday for 8 class segments. Or Friday, Saturday. Or is it four? Eight class segments, but over a period of four separate weekends, right? Yes. Do I remember that correctly? And then, but one of my first ones was accounting with Dr. Short. Yes. And I remember in very first class weekend, you know, at that point I'd had my restaurant for two, two years, I think. And as we're sitting there, I was listening in class thinking, this doesn't sound like what my guy's doing. (laughs) And then later went and dove in and quickly found out that that person was not doing what they were supposed to. And I got rid of them as quickly as possible. And so talk about literally, as as TCU likes to say, is classroom on Friday, Saturday, ROI on Monday. Well, that ROI, that return on investment came in because it ultimately – saved me, I don't even know how much money. Yes. So, I mean, that was a real world, you know, just, wow, you don't know what you don't know, right? Right. And as you, you know, at many of our students are, of course, at kind of their mid-career point. So average age of the executive MBA students is around 39. But we have quite a range. So some can be, you know, occasionally we get that rising star that's in their late 20s, that that's just really doing phenomenal either in their own business or or in a larger company it, but then we can have people as old as 65 or or even older and we have had and so they bring this really diverse perspective in the classroom but one of the one of the really nice things you know to your point that you get this ROI is the the recognition by the the students that they learn to they learn to ask the right questions of the people who are doing their work, you know, their functional expertise work. So in this case, this was an accountant who was doing work for you. Um, People that run businesses sometimes, you know, they rely on others. But when, unless you know at least the, the fundamental aspects of things, you don't know whether or not Things are being run the way they should be. And, and that's really the push that our faculty give is what what do you need to know about this? So you have to, as you know, you have to go in the finance class, for instance, you have to go deep into the formulas to really understand where things come from. But the faculty also say, why does this matter? And what questions would you ask to make sure that that things are running the way they should be. And I've seen so many, I, I, you know, so many occasions over the years of, of working in this program, I've talked to alums or, or to students who have said, I looked and asked this question and realized even, even things, something, some things as minute as the accountant had an Excel spreadsheet that had a wrong formula in it and had been missed 
you know, not inadvertently using an incorrect formula for multiple clients over multiple years. And because the student knew to ask the question, they were able to resolve that issue. So huge things like that that you would never imagine going in. Yeah, and that is just the essence of what I got. So when I did my undergrad at TCU is where I learned how to learn. And when I went back and did my MBA with you, I I learned how to ask the right questions. I didn't have to know the answers. I just had to learn to ask the right questions, which is, you know, with my background, just I, I would say I've got a pretty unique career trajectory, right? So from dropping out of high school, going into the Marines, then getting out and joining Fort Worth PD for a number of years, getting my undergrad while working in patrol, then fast forward, you know, promoting through the ranks, needed to get a graduate degree, end up back at TCU doing the executive MBA, and then leaving the PD early, you know, doing an early retirement to go work for a unnamed company where actually the reason that relationship ended was because I was asking the right questions, but I wasn't getting any answers. Not that I was getting wrong answers. We weren't getting any answers. Mm -hmm. And I had signed on to be a part of a culture where they had promised that I could ask questions, get answers, and there was all this transparency. And ultimately, that was a very painful financial situation that it caused me. But then it, it, it really gave a lot of strength and power to, you know, what is the right question? So when I started the SPAN group and and it grew by going, what are the right questions, mm -hmm. right? You know, how do I create value? What are the clients looking for? What is important to the client? What is not important to the client? How do I manage my pipeline? What is in my pipeline? And just so forth and so forth to where it also taught me how to start asking uncomfortable questions, yes. right? Because everybody wants to ask the, you know, good stuff, but you have to dive into where are the blind spots mm -hmm. in this? And, and actually with the program, that's another key component you learn out of there is learning what your both good and bad blind spots are, right? Yes. You know, I, I truly believe that the people who get the most benefit out of our program are the ones who are willing to look in the mirror. And sometimes that mirror, when they first enter the program, is is really fogged and they don't even know it and they've they've got a view of themselves that is far from the reality of the view that others have and we push one another to to challenge their assumptions about themselves and about the world around them and we push one another the cohort to speak to one another about how uh, they view how their uh, actions and their behavior is is kind of seen and 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 they learn to lead in a different way if they're willing to look in that mirror and say hmm you know maybe i you know as as one of our professors in the program rob rhodes used to say don't be a jerk right and if you are in a room 
with 30 other people and you know that there's got to be a jerk in the room somewhere, but you haven't named them yet, then probably that jerk is you, right? <laughs> so, so just really, you know, looking in the mirror and saying what it is, what do I want to do and how do I want to improve myself? And I, I've seen so many people get so much out of the experience when they do that. Oh, and I, I think I was definitely a uh, shell that peeled lots of layers off to learn a lot of things about myself in the program that were not exactly things that, one, I, I didn't realize some of them, and in other ones I just wanted to ignore. But if you're going to get out of something, what you put into it is you really have to lean into the process, right? Mm-hmm. And And doing it it really positioned me that when I made a decision to leave the department and go to this other company that ended very poorly, I just leaned heavier into what what I learned out of the program, right? And what I what was really interesting is I, I think being in the PD, I didn't under I learned the concepts, but I didn't really have anywhere to deploy those concepts mm-hmm. inside the PD where then when I was trying to deploy them, but what during that company I had gone to after the PD, but not allowed to demonstrate them that when I finally got to just say, you know what, I'm just going to do my own thing because, you know what, I, nobody else is listening to me. And yes. and I know that I really want to put this stuff to work. And then doing it and scaling at a rapid, rapid rate. And, and it leads me to, it can also help you establish so much trust with people when you're asking the right questions. Mm -hmm. So right now I'm working on a significantly large deal as you and I talked about a few minutes ago before we started this and which this deal may or may not happen, you know, nothing's done till the ink is dry. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that I've done through it is to go, here are the questions that I'm asking for this particular deal that I don't have the answers to. And these are things that could go wrong and here are some questions that I'm asking of what could trigger these things to go wrong, right? And then basically the person that's representing the money coming in gave them a lot of comfort because they were like, man, you're not just telling me the good news. You're you're showing me where some of these things I didn't even realize, mm-hmm. right? So, for example, their analysts were analyzing the, the financials on this deal and they sent it back and it's a large property acquisition. I should have happen and and I looked at it and I said, no, no, no. I said, man, your analysts are wrong. You're accounting for what the property tax is on this thing because the sellers own this for many years. But the second the transaction happens on this, it's going to get reassessed by the appraisal district. Your tax number is actually going to be $200,000 more than that. And so even, you know, people think just because I'm in sales, you know, I'm just trying to sell somebody. I'm like, no, I want you to have the confidence and comfort in the decision that you're going to make. Especially when you're going to be writing a check as large as this one. I mean, yeah. it's a very, very large check. <laughs> and, and so, but learning how to answer the, uh, how to ask those questions is what I do. As a matter of fact, on my strategy board, right? Yes. And the other strategy is Love I've got that. walls <laughs> that have this special dry erase, erase paint so I can just write on the walls. And that's what I'll do is I'll start with an opportunity and then underneath it, I'll just start writing questions. Mm-hmm. Writing questions and in that question, trying to create another question that just gets to a point I can look at it and go, whoa, there's a lot of unanswered questions here. Or at the end of it, it's like, 
wow, we have a lot of answers to these questions and it looks really good or it doesn't look so good. Mm-hmm. So that was that was a great value that I got learning out of the classroom at TCU. But, you know, like everybody that has great journeys, your journey had to begin somewhere. Where, so where where are you originally from? And talk to us about where you came from, where you grew up, and then how you got to where you're at now being the executive director of TCU's Executive MBA. Well, I was born in St. Louis, Missouri, and my memory of that is actually when I was young, probably preschool, kindergarten, my father went through one of the very first executive MBA programs that was around. It was a, it was an MBA program that there at Washington University of St. Louis, I remember him in, in his graduation gown and holding his hand as as walking through the gardens there, a fantastic memory. We ended up, he ended up taking a general plant manager role in at U.S. Steel chemical plant in Alabama, northern Alabama. So we moved there, and that's where I spent my, through high school. Then I went to uh, school, actually, where my father went to school at the University of Illinois in Champaign, got a degree in accounting, became a CPA. And that was one of those things where, you know, I started down the path as an undergrad, didn't really know what I wanted to do, knew they had a great accounting school and just said, well, you know, I'll learn what is in front of me and became an accountant and started my career actually in Houston and for a company, Browning Ferris Industries. Well, Browning Ferris Industries is a waste management company. And so, you know, I joked that I worked for a garbage company, which is true, and but it, it gave me the opportunity to audit garbage all around the world. So that was kind of my first exposure to working in a global environment. I got a lot out of it. We did internal uh, audit efficiency audits. And so that's where I first learned that I was interested in more of a big picture thinking. I was interested in understanding why in organizations, companies tended to work in silos. So there'd be the sales team, and then there would be the operations team. And and I got to work with both. And I would get to, you know, actually ride on the trucks and see that the drivers cared about their customers. And they cared that they weren't being overcharged. And they would tell me things like, you know, we charge these customers twice a week, but really they are only they only need once a week service. And so then, you know, we'd go back and talk to sales about that and they would adjust their service as a result of that or their sales contracts. But I was just really surprised that there was no conversation amongst them. And that's when I really, you know, that's one of the reasons why I decided to go back to school and get my MBA at the time was I said, I want to understand the bigger picture and understand why these misses would happen. So I went to the University of Texas in Austin. And while I was in the MBA program, decided that a PhD was in order because I had forgotten just how much I had loved school. And it took all of about, you know, a month into my MBA program to say, why did I ever leave to begin with? You know, besides the fact that I needed to pay the bills, right? <laughs> so the the decision to make a PhD, to get a PhD was, 
I, I think in part because I had been working with someone at BFI who who told me when I was going back to get my MBA, he said, you know, Suzanne, you'd make a great teacher. And I thought, that's a thought that's never occurred to me. It, it's never been on my radar. And so I, you know, ask him more about that. Well, why do you think so? And the conversation that we had just always stuck with me. And so getting that PhD and then having the opportunity, and the PhD was in strategic management, which is a, a much broader kind of view of, of business. It's how do you manage an entire business successfully and how do all those component pieces work together to, to give your business the most best odds of being successful in the long run? You know, that, that to me was, was really the missing piece that I had from having the narrow vision that I had as an accountant to getting this broad perspective. So from there, I actually, my first job after I graduated was at the University of Notre Dame. I taught there for several years while I was there, five plus years. While I was there, there managed to have three kids within the span of two years and decided to actually take a break from teaching for a while and raise them. You literally ran a supply chain system to have three kids in two years. <laughs> it, was an, it was an amazing thing. It was quite efficient, I have to admit. Uh, I'm glad I had the two kids first, had twins first, because that made the one way easier when she came along. But three girls, very proud of them, just recently became an empty nester. And actually, all three girls are at TCU right now. But so once, you know, during that time when they were still young, we actually chose to move back to Texas and we moved back to the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And uh, when my youngest started first grade, I said, I'm ready to get back into that educational world. And that's when I started at TCU. And I've taught in the executive MBA program since then. So it's been about 12 years in the program. I've had the privilege of seeing hundreds of students graduate from the program. But I've taught strategy at TCU. That's my, you know, primary hat, I think, is a professor of strategy. So I, I, I've taught strategy at the executive MBA level. I've taught workshops with the full-time MBA students. And I've also taught the undergrads. And right now, I currently teach the fellows program undergrad strategy, which is which is the kind of the the high uh, academically oriented students, the most academically oriented students at the Neely School. And so they're a lot of fun to teach. I teach them as seniors. So I want to go back to something you had missed or mentioned, which was the silo, right? I call them, I wrote down a note here as, you know, silo misses, right? Yes. Which can be costly or or even potentially losing a, a client is how often do you think these silo misses occur in business? More often than anyone cares to admit. Why do you think that is? I think it's because people, well, they they struggle with 
what we talk about in class is this approach of zooming in and zooming out. So, so many times if you're in a department, you have functional expertise, accounting, uh, finance, marketing, operations, R&D, and you're tasked with doing a particular job. And that job becomes your tunnel vision. And so you want to get that job done as well as possible. And kudos to the people who can do that. But if someone in another department takes a different direction, let's say that the marketing people decide that, hey, we can market this to a different group and no one says anything to the, to the R&D group, then they're not going to get the right, the right bells and whistles added to that particular product that's, go- that's going to be effective with that group. And so unless there's communication, that's really going to be a miss. And that's where those silos really struggle. And communication is, you know, as you know, it, it's costly because it takes time. It, so people try to avoid it if they can. But lack of communication is even more costly. So we spend a lot of time in our strategy class talking about how you set how you need to set up these lines of communication and also informal ways for people to communicate effectively so that the, that siloed thinking doesn't occur. Yeah, and that, I love how that leads right into communication, which was probably one of the most essential skill sets that I realized I lacked in heavily. And going back to Rob Rhodes, rest his soul, unfortunately passed away COVID last summer, but was dynamic professor, right? He was COVID, right? Is yes. That, yeah. And, and so, you know, he, when we did, when you start the program, you do in residence for a couple of days and bring you all together, stick you in a hotel room and you're going to learn what, how much you're going to like love and not like and not love each other real quick. And he, and I remember when Rob said, you know, your reputation starts today, right? And it's the one thing you're actually in control of. Yes. Right. And how you interact with others. And, you know, I'm a very high A extroverted, just powerhouse at times where I had to learn to really curb a lot of what I wanted to be vocal about, not because I didn't think it was valuable, it was because it wasn't fair to other members in the program. If I was doing all the talking and they didn't have a chance, and really what I learned is, I mean, we had, I, I, I feel like we had one of the most incredible classes that ever came through the program. And I'm not just saying that, you know, because it was the one I was in, it was because we really had an interesting collection of different industries, different folks. I mean, it was just mm-hmm. as probably probably about as diverse as diverse could get. And I just re- remember sitting there and listening and learning and go, wow, so this is what happens when you stop talking. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you know, the diversity is so it's so critical the approach that we take is we can learn more from one another than we can from a professor 
lecturing in front of us. We can all get that content. You can do that in an online environment where you're just getting content. You can do that, you know, in a study room by yourself where you're just getting content. But the richness and the variety of how you can apply that content and and how you can learn different angles of that content comes from getting a group of people together like that. And I had an alum actually talk to me about the program after after the program and his comment was, you know, Suzanne, the the EMBA program cohort is like a slice of life. The people in there are what we see in the in the real world and that cohort if you if you develop a trust in one another then you can share and have these uncomfortable conversations that you talked about earlier with one another and make everybody better as a result of it and and that's what i love so much so yes you learn that one of the best ways to learn is to listen and it's not about you know, it's not about making sure that everybody knows you're the smartest person in the room on a particular topic. It's let's make everyone the smartest person in the room on all of these topics. And and many times the best way we do that, <clears throat> excuse me, is by is by listening or you know, many of the introverts in the class, what they bring to a classroom is the ability to synthesize. So they'll sit back and listen, and then they'll say, this is what I heard. And that, and those can be light bulb moments for other people. So just understanding the complementary nature of people that are put on this planet and knowing it's all about asking the right questions, to your point. When you know, I need to learn to ask better questions because I don't have all the answers. Yeah, and that's and one of the one of the interesting things that I found in in the program was, you know, so you have the academia part of it, then you have the classroom interaction part of it, and then you have the teams. Yes. Right? And and so for for me personally, right? So my first team I I did what I had normally done, which is, you know, just B-SPAN. And <laughs> and at the end of that segment of the team being together for the first third of the program, and we do reviews on each other, some pretty colorful things <laughs> came, came to fruition where I was like, I mean, I couldn't argue with it. I was like, yeah, I was, you know, I was trying to manipulate the situation on that or whichever. So mm-hmm. it caused me to go into my second team of saying, hey, this is what I got dinged on in my last team. And I need you guys. But the only frustrating thing I had was my first team waited to tell me in an evaluation, never told me daring it, right? Yes. So I made it a point when I went into my second team to go, Hey, these are some things that were identified, but do me a favor. Don't wait. If you see mm-hmm. something with me, don't wait till the end of this thing. You know, be vocal. Yes. And of course, careful what you wish for because <clears> my <throat> team, <laughs> and then they were very vocal. But it was great. And then it prepared me for, you know, the third team I was a part of is, I don't think anybody would disagree, but me and Christy were probably the more strong personalities of the mm-hmm. class and uh, and so I did laugh when y'all put us on the same team <laughs> I thought this is going to be really interesting but 
being that what I experienced in the first two teams allowed Christy and I to work very close together. We built this incredible relationship. And I, I just, I, had I gone and been on a team with Christy in the beginning, I think it would have been just a, a pretty huge failure. Mm-hmm. But because of what I learned from team one, team two, I was able to work with another very strong personality. And we were able to move the needle and get a lot of things done, which was incredibly just helpful for me moving forward after that, right? Mm-hmm. Was to learn how to navigate major challenges that might not be a, hey, equals MC square got divided yes. by the square root of dot com. It's a, this person's got a personality and I got a personality, yes. but we need to accomplish this together. How do we learn to communicate with one another? in order to be able to do that. So that was a very strong point for me to learn that has allowed me to demonstrate for the last seven years since I've been out of the program to get to where I've come. So that was a, that was a good valuable lesson. And, and on top of that is I want to ask you about as folks come through the program, right? Some come through and naturally you're going to have some people just come because they want to get a piece of paper, right? Mm -hmm. You know, they want to check that box to get to the next level. Then you have some that come because they want to ascend in their organization. And then you have some, like myself, that come in and had no idea that before it was all over, I wasn't just going to change jobs, change careers, but make a complete change in industry mm-hmm. to something that I, I knew nothing about. And, and I've been, you know, I've had my ups and downs in the beginning of that, but been able to create a very successful path. How often do you see that in the program? It is interesting to me. We have, we've, we've recognized over the last, say, five years that we have a very different student body that's represented in our EMBA program than we did prior to that. So just historically speaking, EMBA programs were originally developed for companies to put their employees through through a program. And so most of the of the individuals were and our students were uh, sponsored by their companies in full. That model changed drastically after the economic recession and now you have only about 25% of the cohort who is sponsored by their company, and the remainder pay their own way. And so they care a great deal about, of course, they care a great deal about what they're getting from the program because they're footing the bill. And that being said, the whole experience of what you get out of the program, so we now recognize that there are these diverse groups of people in the room that have different reasons for being there. So some, and, and, and to your point, Jeremy, some become what we would call pivoters in the program. I remember there was a, a student who was working in a Fortune 100 company, very successful, just wanted to make it up, you know, the next couple of levels. And he took the entrepreneurship class. And in that entrepreneurship class, you do an assessment, and he discovered he was way more entrepreneurial than he thought. And that's when the seeds of what I might call discontent occurred, where he said, wait, maybe this role that I have 
at this company is not what I ultimately want. And he ended up ultimately starting his own business. And so that pivot came for him, similar to you, completely unexpected. And and that's because many people are transformed through our program. They realize they have gone down a path that is what might have been the easy path for them that didn't require any thought or any consideration for change. And they realize they've gotten to a place that they don't ultimately want to be. And so they look in the mirror and they reflect on what their strengths are and they reflect on, you know, making uncomfortable decisions and they and they do end up pivoting. So we have a number of pivoters and I'd say there's probably a good 20% of the students that go through our program who end up changing directions unexpectedly. I actually think, if I'm not mistaken, there are seven, there were seven people in our previous class who decided to, to go into business for themselves um, during their time in the program. So it's a very entrepreneurial environment. And, and, but we also focus on entrepreneurship and innovation for people who are working in larger companies and how they can get that entrepreneurial spirit kind of embedded in, in their own organizations. The other thing I wanted to talk about is you, you started this conversation talking about teams. And I think that's an important thing to kind of consider where we are very deliberate in how we build our teams and how we put the teams together for you all to go through. And this is not something that MBA, you know, to be certified and credentialed to get an MBA that you have to go through this team experience. We put you in three different teams. And again, you could go through an online program and never, never be put in a team or, or you could go through another program and they may suggest you work in teams and study teams. But this deliberate experience that that we put our students through, and, and in some cases, you're like, wow, why are we being put through this? We are never going to let, let an opportunity for education go to waste. And as if we're developing agile leaders, agile strategic leaders, we want the leaders to be able to to learn how to be most agile and working in different teams with different personalities is part of being effective in business. And and asking our students to give that peer feedback to evaluate one another is the best way to do that. So I think, you know, those those kind of issues combined, you know, how how to learn from one another and and how to learn in a, you know, you get put in another environment and with another set of group, another set of people, and how to learn to have that team perform at its highest level. Those are exceptional tools that many people that, you know, even that join our program don't really anticipate they're going to get that benefit out of it. So those are two different topics that we talked about. The the pivoter approach and kind of reflecting on yourself, but also the reflecting back. And that is seeing how others in the cohort 
are leading and helping one another to get to where they really should and are best served where they best belong. Yeah. And, you know, knowing the value of what someone gets out of going through successfully the TCU's executive MBA program is what gave me a large amount of confidence to recently bring someone on to my team. That is a recent graduate, James Peterson. Yes. I was thrilled to hear that. Yeah. I, I was so for the audience and, and James will do it. He, he's been on here before with Caltown Warriors, fellow Marine, but we're going to bring him on to do another one to talk about what he's doing with us is, but when I, I had to told James, so James and I are on Caltown Warriors together, the foundation for vets that you guys have been very much a part of since I started that thing and supported me well through that is James had been in commercial insurance, right? And he had just transitioned to a new company, Lockton, which is, you know, very well known, you know, very heavy hitter in the insurance world. And, and so, you know, they, I had suckered him into going ahead and going through the painful, you know, process of going to do TC's executive MBA program. Because I said, man, listen, if you really want to understand the world from a 35,000 foot view, Mm -hmm. you need to understand all the different aspects of it. You don't have to be a subject matter expert in all of them, but know how to ask the right questions. And so, but one of the interesting things that he experienced going through the program, just as I experienced it, the PD was, it wasn't that we were unhappy in our industries, but it was that we weren't happy, right? We were just content. Mm-hmm. And and so as he was nearing the end to get to graduation and, and you know, and he and I are, you know, naturally close friends and I've been a mentor for him for a long time, is it really started to uncover that he really wasn't happy where he was and and so he had he and i were sitting there talking and he and he was just really frustrated where he was but i think a large part of that frustration came from he was he was causing his own frustration because i think intrinsically he knew he just wasn't where he was supposed to be mm-hmm. and and so one day he calls me and says you know what man i don't i don't think i'm where i belong and and so he went to his company and, you know, said, hey, guys, I don't belong here. And and they were pretty shocked to hear that from him. And because his boss is also a friend of mine. Mm. And so his boss and me being naturally, you know, concerned, you know, for James, like, man, what are you going to go do? You know, what is that industry jump going to be to where the more I started talking to Michael, his president, the more I started thinking, Wait a minute, I need to hire this guy. <laughs> and so Michael Moore, you know, your loss is my gang. Right. So, and he's been on this show. Michael's been on this show. <laughs> is Actually, I flew James up to see me in Colorado. I said, hey, man, I'm going to send you a plane ticket since you decided you wanted to, you know, go ahead and stop working. And then brought him up there. And, and it was funny. So he, James had called Michael and said, yeah, Spans wants me to come up here and house sit for him so he and his wife can go do a little bit of camping. And Michael told him, said, I think that's more of a recruiting trip than anything <laughs> else. So he, you know, we, you know, came on and, 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 it, and it is made, even though it's still new that him being on the team, but it's made a large amount of comfort that 
the communication is so easy because he understands a lot mm-hmm. of things. So not not many real estate teams, especially that's primarily focused on residential real estate, have everybody's got an undergrad. There's a lawyer, Laura, and two MBAs, James mm-hmm. and I, right? So that's a unique feature for something that anybody with a pen and paper could go get a license in, right? And and so that's what's made our competitive advantage and our differentiator, and and, and it made us incredibly successful to be in the top one percent of producers mm-hmm. in, in real estate. Is but having that ability is he's having a lot of light bulb moments because I give him a hard time. Is and I do. And, and in my fact, anytime we have new clients and he introduces himself, hey, I'm the new guy. I'm just trying to learn everything. And my job is to be yelled at by Jeremy. And then <laughs> it gets around to me and I go, my job is to yell at James. <laughs> so, but it's really funny is I harass him because, you know, what he's learning is insurance is I, I compare it to like a green egg smoker and a gas grill. Insurance is slow and low, like a brisket. You take your time, man, you're working to get the client, could take right. a long time, and you get them to the table that may or may not turn out to be a good brisket or not. Whereas we're like searing a, a filet mignon, right? It's, it's hot and the fast. Black and blue. Oh, version. yeah, black and blue. It is hot <laughs> and fast. Things move incredibly fast. And so I give them a hard time. I'm like, I'm like, hey, are you being slow and low today? Or are you being hot and fast? <laughs> or are you being insurance, James? Or are you being real estate, James? And man, he's just I'm like getting up. And of course, I'm being a fellow Marine. I can razz him more. But <laughs> but it, it, it's been really interesting to see him have these light bulb moments because mm-hmm. as we're going through talking about being a subject matter experts in real estate is it's more than just knowing what a house buys and sells for. You know, what are the trends? What are the leading causes of trends like lumber? Mm-hmm. Lumber is incredibly expensive right now. But can most people tell you why? And it's important to understand the why, because when you understand the why, then you can see the trends of when it's going to come down. So we can properly advise clients, you know, or when supply chains are disrupted, Mm -hmm. right, to be able to go, hey, this is why this is happening. And so it's really fun to watch him get it very, very quickly because he has this background of what he just learned, you know, out of the program that he's able to deploy. But he also brings that unique perspective because he comes from that insurance industry space and then now he's learning the real estate space, which mm-hmm. is going to make him even more of an asset than I've even ever been for the team. Yes. You know, having that framework, especially, you know, being able to speak the same language of of the overarching framework that you're trying to get at and then starting to see it from different angles and adding the value with with the knowledge that you have in these different levels of expertise that are coming in differently into that framework and you understand them. That is, that's what I love. And that is the reason why uh, many teams are more successful because they have, they, they can speak the same lang- language because they've built the same framework. Oh, yeah. And, and, and what really makes it a, valuable to, you know, in all that is I was able to, talk about the strategic plan of the spanker because we would be mm-hmm. amiss if we didn't talk about yes, strategy no, for sure right i mean that is your hot spot right there and and, and it's really interesting is james of course being newer and energetic and has all these ideas as i said look man here's what here's the one thing is is i'm never going to turn down a good idea but you're like me we're idea junkies <laughs> 
<laughs> and right now I need you to focus on learning because he will evolve to take over my role, which is the business development and research and development portion of the SPAN group. And and so I, I've told him, I said, here's what I want you to do. Is I don't know, there's no bad idea, right? Is But I want you to write them down mm-hmm. because right now I need you to be in, in absorb, absorbing mode. But I want you to have these ideas to write down because I want you to look at them a couple of weeks later. And if they still seem like a good idea, then what I want you to do is put it through a Porter's Five Forces, mm-hmm. right, to see is this something we should even even entertain. And yes. and we'll come back so you can kind of talk to the audience about Porter's. And then if it answers the litmus test of Porter's Five Forces says, yes, this could be an opportunity, then the Five Diamond strategy of how do we deploy this idea mm-hmm. and is it within our – is it is it does it does it align with the strategy that we have for growing, you know, with the vehicles of it, the staging and pacing and everything yes. else that goes on with that idea? And I said, and once you've gone through those, but I said a lot of these ideas you're having right now is because you're new and you're energetic. But there's a lot of these ideas that you're gonna realize really quickly are already either been done and gone mm-hmm. or or you're just getting ready to learn what they are. But keep writing them down because there's gonna be some ideas that your brain housing group is going to stimulate that could turn into something very valuable. Yes. So talk to us about, you know, what it means to be a strategic leader in, 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 in the strategy portion of, you know, of the program. You know, it is, it is kind of incredible because you have to wear so many different hats. And many people that come back to school, they come back, they're very successful. You know, they say, I, I, I've been an engineer all my life. I've made my way up to, you know, this stage. But I realize I have never learned to think strategically. And so they come into the strategy class with this thirst for understanding that bigger picture. And and the hats that you wear, they look very different too, right? So from that visionary, the idea generator, we, we talk about you know, people like Elon Musk as one of the greatest visionaries of our time. But to get someone who is really good at generating ideas and having a vision to also being able to execute on that vision through the the tactical approach that you have to take once you've developed that strategic plan, those people are, they're rare, they're rare. So understanding what your capabilities are is very important. But, you know, what we do in our classroom is we start with that idea of what is the vision that you want to achieve. And then we say, you know, to your point, let's look. Is there an opportunity? Is there an opportunity to really put that into play, which requires analysis and analytics and, and attention to detail and things that aren't necessarily up there, pie in the sky, visionary things. But unless you do those appropriately, effectively, and you know, and and really ask the right questions, then you're not going to know whether or not you're just going down a path that's going to end up being a dead end. And then figuring out then how to ultimately execute that strategy effectively is an entirely different skill set. So I spend a lot of time saying, let's look at the bigger picture. 
Okay, let's look at macro in macro environmental concepts. You know, what if if you were working in a global economy, this particular business model here might work really effectively in the U.S. Can we just lift it up and set it down in Buenos Aires and have it be effective there? Probably not. So what matters contextually that's going to make a difference? And can you influence that? And if so, how? So I... And then, as you said, light bulbs just go off. People start, they get that framework, and then they're at least able to start putting pieces together and know when to wear what hat, which, which to me is, is kind of the primary responsibility of the strategist is to know, okay, now I've got to step back or I've got to dig deep. Because, I mean, a good idea without execution is – just an idea, right? It is. You can write about it, but it's not going to give you any money. <laughs> and I learned a, a, a ton a, about that and even have deployed it in how I'm doing things now, even with this larger acquisition that I'm, that I'm working on. And even with, you know, I've sold a few companies for folks, helped them sell their companies and being able to create the offering memorandum that I went in there with the intention of ask me a question that hasn't been answered in this OM, right? Is I wanted somebody that by the time they got through 35 pages of this OM with links to financial whole nine yards, you know, from the 35,000 foot view down to the street level to what each employee costs, blah, 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 blah. And, 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 and because the goal of what I wanted was that when, for example, when Dan bought his company, Dan Verbowski bought Leon's, mm-hmm. and he was one of 100 people looking at it, is we were able to quickly get to quick no's because you were able to get to the end of it and decide, hey, I have all the questions answered. This is just not what I want for whatever reason or it's not a fit to get to quick no's and reliable yeses where from the time we went to market with the company to the time that we were papered up in contract was under 90 days and closed 90 days later. And the reason we were able to close this multi-million dollar company so quick was because the bank was able to go, you answered every question we have. As a matter of fact, I make a joke with the, the banker on it. He's still a friend of mine. It, it was just coincidental that the banker that Dan chose, I was like, yeah, I know, I know Chris <laughs> Hamilton. And and so it was kind of funny. Matter of fact, I saw him. He has a house up in the Springs like I do. And we saw each other last week and we were making jokes of this. Is You know, the he, he went to send it to the no guy at the bank, you know, and the no, no guy's job is to say no, right? He's there yes. to mitigate risk. And then Chris had called me and said, my new guy wants to take you out for a drink. And I said, why? And he goes, because in the first time in the history of ever never, has he been able to let one go on the first pass because he couldn't say no. You know, he kind of stole his thunder. And <laughs> But that's that's how I got to that was just learning to, you know, what are all the questions the bankers are going to ask? What are the questions that the buyer is going to ask, the mm-hmm. seller is going to ask, the lions, tigers, bears, whoever are going to ask? And that was, that was very valuable to even also, Dan, recently – had said, hey, I was going back and looking at the OM, and you had created a couple of different potential avenues of how to scale the business, mm-hmm. which had some Porter's Five Forces yes. and, 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 and had the Five Diamond strategy and so forth. And he goes, it was just really interesting to go back and see how all that was still in there. Now, three and a half years later that he's owned the company. 
Yes. And so, the, I mean, talk about just the value that you get out of there. And, 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 I, and I'd be amiss if I, if I didn't bring up like what you had mentioned earlier is that global perspective, mm-hmm. right? So, I mean, that's a valuable part of the program is the global learning aspect. And so talk, talk to us through that. I tell you what, it, it can be a game changer, a life changer for so many people. Even for people that have worked in the global arena for such a long time, I've heard uh, students say that they, you know, they they had traveled with their company to 30 plus countries and, and didn't get the same experience as they did when they went with an education lens. And what I would say, what we try to do in our global class is we try to go to countries that people would not necessarily choose to go on vacation, but countries that are that are going to um, bring out discomfort because they have different cultures, be, because they uh, work under different economies, perhaps different governments. And, and we say, hey, if you are in this place, how would you lead differently? And so for people that even are Fort Worth based in a Fort Worth company with Fort Worth products, they need to have a global mindset because Fort Worth is global. You know, whether or not you recognize it, it's global. DFW is one of the hubs of the world. And as you think about even our products coming in, the people that are moving to the area, all of those things interact with one another. And we need to understand that this global environment is different than than what perhaps you grew up with and the school you attended and, you know, the experience that you had as a child. So when I teach the global strategy class, I, my biggest, my biggest push is for people to understand that context matters and understanding other people's perspectives and incorporating them into the decisions that you make with your own business is very important. So we, we, we make people uncomfortable. We say, okay, you've got a team. Let's just say randomly, we're going to Morocco, which in fact we did one year. Your team is responsible for a particular industry, and we let them choose the industry. So let's say they choose retail, retail trade. Go to Morocco. When we go to Morocco, you need to meet with three different companies and learn about retail from a Moroccan perspective and develop an opportunity to move into that, into retail in Morocco. So we say, you know, we basically give the parameter of saying you're in a fictional company here in the U.S. that is choosing to move into this global space. And and let's just say we have a lot of pivoting going on because People have an assumption about where they think they would be effective in Morocco before they get there. And then once they get there and they speak to the different companies and the businesses and the individuals, they start to recognize there's different now that they understand Porter's Five Forces, they understand 
where there might be opportunity in an industry and they start to get at that context, then they say, oh, you know, here we have some resources and capabilities that are going to be, as we call them, overwhelmingly effective in this particular location. And so ultimately the goal of that that project is to just pinpoint an opportunity in this country and whether or not they could be successful with it. It allows them the discomfort of saying, you know, wow, I would have never believed that I could make connections with individuals in Morocco, and, and yet you can, you can. So we challenge them to that. And then, wow, I would have never thought that I could actually effectively start a business in Morocco and be successful in that. And in many cases, in some cases, we have seen the the individuals in the program actually move forward with those business connections they've made and start doing business. So it's a practical and theoretical approach to really expanding your comfort zone. Well, it certainly helped me in business. So we went to Buenos Aires, yes. Argentina, and then we went to Santiago, Chile, and then we went to Lima, Peru. And, and the interesting thing is, so my my undergrad, you know, was you know political science, international relations, with an emphasis on Latin American studies. So what I had gone to TCU is I had learned about somebody who was the then mayor of Mexico City, mm-hmm. named Lopez Orbador. And I remember my foreign policy professors talking about how Lopez Orbador was someone on the radar to be a future president of Mexico, of all of Mexico, and that he really appealed to the people and he was very left wing and and so forth. So I understand in the different politics of different countries like, you know, Latin America, and then fast forward going on you know, the global studies trip that we did of setting up these meetings, learning to communicate, how do you get to the decision makers and so forth. Then fast forward to now there was a presidential race in Mexico where Lopez Orbador was a front runner. And what I had learned in the end of 2018 was that Mexico citizens especially those of high net worth, were going to make up 35% of international buyers in Texas and California. And so I'm sitting there, and I had a really good friend of mine, Brett Dickinson, out in La Jolla, California, who was dealing with a lot of high net worth Mexican citizens that were deploying money to buy properties. And and so I had I had Brent and I known each other for a long time, and I said, "Man, because in 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 real estate, I don't just make commissions off of helping people buy and sell real estate, but I get paid a referral fee if I connect a client and an agent anywhere on the planet. But I have taken great pride in making sure I connect people with the right people, not just with a agent, but the best agent, right? Matter of fact, we've been successful at it to a point where we've been number one in Sotheby's." three years in a row in doing these referrals mm-hmm. effectively. Because you can refer all day long, but if the deal doesn't close, then again, it goes back to being just a good idea without execution, it's just right. an idea. And so we that meant that we had to 
learn about other agents. We had to learn, you know, who was good in there. You know, just because you're the highest producer in your area doesn't mean you're the best producer in your area. And just because you're the best producer in your area might not mean you're a fit for that client. And so we had built this platform of learning, you know, who the agents were. And I told Brent, I said, man, we need to get down here in Mexico City. But matter of fact, we, we, we were so successful at this for three years in a row that every year and a half, Sotheby's, which is a global brand, it's in mm-hmm. just about every major country there is, they did their global networking event. And they, this time was on Zoom or a Zoom-like feature because of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And they actually featured our team on there where we were speaking to the entire global Sotheby's presence on hey, we, the reason we've been number one is because we know how to connect relationships, find the right people. So when Brent and I said, let's get down here because if Lopez Orbador wins, then I think that is going to pick up the volume of people wanting to get their money out mm-hmm. of Mexico to park it here in the U.S. because of their concerns. For Because look, let's face it, no matter where you are in this planet, people spend money based on politics many times, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or their lack of, right? Yes. Yes. And so... So we hedged that, and we went down there, and the first time we met with all the agents down there trying to learn to people, but then we started making meetings where we were down there every 60 to 90 days in Mexico City and meeting with wealth managers, accountants, anybody that touched the money, because if somebody's going to move money, they're going to talk to the people that touched their money first. Mm -hmm. So that way we would be the first point of contact to navigate those referrals wherever they were going. Mm-hmm. And and we were, I mean, that was a, uh, as a matter of fact, we got a great place we stay in Polanco down there called Las Alcobas. This is a, this is a plug for Las Alcobas. It's a little <laughs> boutique hotel, 33 rooms. Oh, it's great. Send a driver, pick us up from the airport and all that. And, but it was really funny as people were like, oh, you're going to Mexico. You better have your head on a swivel. I was like, man, I'm down here in Polanco. And Man, I mean, it's some of the best restaurants and everything yes. else. Everything's walking distance. I always felt safe there. But it was really interesting because, prior, you know, up until the pandemic hit, I mean, this became a part of what we do is mm-hmm. every 60 to 90 days, we were down there having that presence so that way we could attract the business. Mm-hmm. And that way they could get the subject matter experts in going and, and buying real estate and, you know, and, and, it, and it did mean a lot to them to go, okay, you're not just some real estate agent. You're someone that's actually educated and then even higher education and yes. you have this experience and so forth. So that helped me unlock a lot of business that, that came in. And then, of course, you know, the pandemic comes and shuts things down with all kinds of things like supply chain. So mm-hmm. talk, talk to me about that. I mean, from your from your standpoint of seeing just these major supply chain interruptions is like, I think I read a, a article this morning, Biden is putting together a task force to fix the supply chains. Right. <laughs> and so, which I always, I always find politics, you know, and look, everybody knows me, he knows that I, I'm not left, right, center, anything else. I, I, nobody could even guess where I lie on it, but I just, I find politics is funny. Like I'm president of the world. I can fix this because I said so or whatever, you know, regardless of what party they're affiliated with. But this supply chain disruption from COVID is a real, is a real problem. Yes. I have to say as, as much as, you know, if I could go back in time and erase COVID, I would do it in a heartbeat, but it has been fascinating from Um, an academic standpoint in seeing how some businesses are able to really, really 
kind of renew their business models in a way that is even more successful today than it was a year and a half ago. And so we get the opportunity to talk about that a lot in class. And of course, supply chain has played a huge role in the ability for companies to either be uh, more successful or in many cases, way less successful because of, because of the restrictions, because of the disruptions, because, and as you pointed out, that you know why these things are happening helps you solve those supply chain issues ultimately. But sometimes it's just a communication thing, right? You have to let your customers know. Normally, we would have these items here. Unfortunately, we're in a delay right now. But to know to, okay, let's let's talk to all these other potential suppliers that may have some things in their inventory or stocked, you know, and, and get them in that way. Those those are the agile lead, leadership skills. I think supply chain is an interesting concept because when you think about it from a strategic standpoint, a lot of things that we talked about, say, for instance, the auto industry decades ago, we talked about how the Japanese companies became so successful because they became so efficient and their push was all about efficiency, just in time inventory, you know, having the most efficient supply chain possible. And so the U.S. said, well, let's, you know, many of the companies said, let's go and study that so we can do the same thing. And it was an exercise in let's the the way we can have the best profit margin is to bring our expenses down and the way we do that is to become more efficient and as you know we can't we can't survive in this what we call this VUCA world this volatile uncertain complex and ambiguous world if all we're focusing on is efficiencies like that because then we don't have that surplus inventory that we need so much. So we're actually asking businesses to have a different mindset now. You're going to have to develop a a new type of supply chain mentality, one that includes the ability to, to be able to pivot in times of crisis like this. Yeah. So do you think that because of these disruptions that the just-in-time inventory mentality will be changed. And, I, and, I and, and that also comes with not just efficiency in what you have and how to do things and make things, but also there's a cost of keeping inventory, right? I mean, there's a financial cost to it, mm-hmm. you know, where, you know, hey, you don't just get taxed on the income your business generates, you get taxed on, you know, the inventory that you yes. have. Yes, I I do think there's going to be opportunities for creative ways of solving these problems where organizations can look to one another and say, is it possible for us to, you know, collectively have a surplus of inventory items so that we can help one another in times of crisis, right? Just like a neighborhood that that, that has a text string that says, hey, do you have a cup of sugar because I'm making a pie and I don't want my pie that's, that's not sweet, right? And somebody's willing to, to hand over that cup of sugar. 
and happily because they know the next day they'll be able to borrow vinegar from their neighbor. That same kind of approach, I think, can be taken uh, with issues like this, that the collaborative effort that so many businesses, just historically speaking in the U.S. in particular, have not considered because we just have such a competitive mindset. Yeah, and and, and, and again, yet another plug for TCU's Executive MBA is understanding the value that I got out of our supply chain portion has helped me create clarity for our clients who are incredibly concerned that a 2008 bubble is 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 upon Imminent. us, mm-hmm. right? And and the interesting thing is because most people confuse the term. They go, well, the housing crisis of 2008. And I'm like, it wasn't the housing crisis of 2008. It was the lending crisis of 2008. Yes. Is actually going back to 2008, we, we actually still were had a scarcity of houses. Mm-hmm. And being that this lending crisis caused such a disruption, we didn't continue building houses the way we should have which actually that supply chain and butterfly effect of what happened in 2008 is one of the main causes to the extreme scarcity of inventory now. Mm-hmm. And then you add in the supply chain disruptions with the, you know, lumber and concrete and raisin that's needed to, you know, build PVC and everything mm-hmm. is when people go, oh, well, you know, the bubble's going to raise and pop. And I'm like, hey, man, Actually, for every day you don't own a house right now, you leave at least $100 on the table because the demand is higher. So the lending, the things that caused the lending crisis, the feds came in and put in barriers to prevent that Mm -hmm. going Mm -hmm. forward. Yes. And now interest rates are incredibly low and those barriers are there. So now you don't just have unqualified buyers, you have qualified buyers, but you have Qualified buyers who sat on the sidelines that didn't want to own a residential home prior to the pandemic, that after being locked up in a 750-square-foot apartment for three months have said, no, I want. So we've added even more demand where we have no supply that is causing this to go up. And and people are like, well, I'll just wait till it comes down. Well, let me just tell you what's going to happen is these builders, are their growth is stunted for the next two years, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, an example of that is... A year ago, if you built a 200-square-foot deck on your house, your lumber materials would have cost you 900 Today, 12 months later, it costs you four grand, right? And so there's a cost that people stop building because they can't sell it for what they can build it for, mm-hmm. right? Yes. And when we're seeing all kinds of crazy things going on in that avenue, builders killing contracts to relist a house for hundred grand more. Mm-hmm. I posted an article the other day on social media. And, of course, you know, the builder's like, well, the clients were a pain in the butt to work with. I was like, really? Well, if that's the case, then I've got a lot of clients that are not a pain in the butt to work with, and this is – you know, luckily they retained us, so we've been able to protect them from that, mm-hmm. seeing that fine print in there. That's why I always tell folks, like, even if you're going to go buy a new construction, call us because there's things that, you know, hopefully it's a good process and everything else. But we might just find something in there mm-hmm. that's going to protect you down the road, which is, you know, detail Laura with the law degree and everything yes. else, that, which yeah, would yeah. bore me to tears to read all that stuff. <laughs> and But, you know, looking at folks and saying, even after they work out their supply chain issues, mm-hmm. which is going to take another 18 to 24 months. We will be so far behind the building spectrum 
that we could build 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and it is going to take us years to catch up with the ability to create inventory where people can buy buy things, where, where I think even in the Fort Worth area in the next 12 months, it could be potentially unavailable to buy anything under 300, mm. right? And and so, and this benefits the the local tax appraisal districts, right? Because, yes. you know, they were making, you know, 3% on a $100,000 home. Now they're making 3% on a $300,000 home because that's what they're trading for. Yes. And, and so there's, there's all kinds of different effects. And the one thing that I think we've learned on this planet is we go forward, but we never go backward, right? And it's when true. people go, well, this housing crisis of 2008, and I'm like, really? It was a housing crisis? I was like, because would you rather buy that same house today or back in 2008? And they're like, well, 2008, because it's yes. worth four times as more. And I'm like, yeah, hello, welcome to inflation in real estate. You know, yes. it's only going to keep going up. Mm-hmm. So the more you just sit on the sidelines, the more you're missing out, right? And, and, and but being able to explain that and create clarity for our clients who have a better understanding of it changes their mentality towards ownership in real estate. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, one of the things too is I can go, look, I can create all the clarity, but I'm not here to be in the convincing business. Mm-hmm. If you're uncomfortable and you don't want to do this, then great. We're, we're just not going to, you know, we're going to be careful of our time. You be careful of your time and we're going to go on, but we're not here to be in a convincing business. But, you know, and, and, and I people go, well, you know, but if it does pop, I'm going to be out a lot of money. And I'm like, hey, man, I, I, I have over $3 million of personal assets and actually four, five, $5 million of personal assets from homes to investments to everything else. If I'm wrong, I'm in a much worse position than you are. <laughs> yes. Right. And, and so that's that it's been good to be able to, to, to be able to articulate that to folks and then bringing James onto the team who, man, he gets it that quick at that snap and mm-hmm. is able to go and, and, and explain this to clients. And one of the things that James and I also share being Marines is veterans. And, mm-hmm. and I've been really, it's really warmed my heart because we had several veterans that naturally came before my class and we had several in my class. But I felt like a lot of us really came together and really pushed to get more veterans in the program, mm-hmm. which can be a blessing or a curse. I fully understand that, <laughs> right? But but if you will, talk to us a little bit about now seeing the influx of veterans coming in and and what that, what that has meant to the program. Yeah. You know, we typically have 25 to 30 percent of our class are veterans. I, I think that it adds tremendous value from – bringing a perspective that a lot of people that come into our program, you know, again, typically we have in the EMBA program, we have about 70% or above our director level or above positions. So they're working in businesses across multiple functional areas. We have people that are CFOs, CEOs of their own organizations. We have people in the nonprofit space. And, you know, to your point earlier, we have police officers sometimes. But having that that veteran perspective, and typically our veterans have transitioned into a business role of some kind, and they, they come in with a very different leadership model, but one that is very effective there. And And I think the people in the room that have these different perspectives that that don't share the military experience i think they to me i see tremendous value in getting that diverse group of students together just 
just the whole, I, I think a big part of it is cultural, just the whole ability to understand every veteran that's, that's entered our program understands the importance of culture in, in being able to really be effective. And, and they build that culture and help the cohort to, to really consider the importance of everyone in the room, right? Which, which is very, very important. Sometimes, sometimes we'll have, you know, typically you get type A personalities in a program of our caliber. And, and the people that come into the program, their, their original expectation is, you know, I'm going to be the, I, I want to show that I'm the smartest person in the class. I want to get the highest grades. And it doesn't take very long for people to realize, hey, you know, this isn't about me being the smartest person in the class. It's about us as a group learning the most that we can. And I, I truly believe the veterans see that as a very, very important part of our program. I know that it is definitely important important to me and being able to take the program helped me translate skills I had learned in the military and in being a first responder into the business world that have made me incredibly effective. Mm -hmm. And so being able to make that transition through that has been very, very, very helpful. So lifelong learning, right? I know that's a passion point for you. I mean, talk to us about that. Well, Jeremy, I think you know, it's interesting being in the role that I'm in as executive director of our program because we speak to a lot of people who have interest in going back to school, but there's always an excuse not to go. The excuse is typically, hey, I'm already successful at what I do. Why would I want to go back to school and put myself through that? Or this isn't a good time. Or, you know, my kids are you know, they take up my time or work is so busy or all of those things. And then when they finally ultimately say, okay, I'm, I'm just going to bite the bullet and come back. There has not been a single soul that I have met who hasn't said, I wish I had done it earlier. Mm -hmm. And so once they get back in the classroom, they say this lifelong learning stuff is the best that I could ever imagine. Because if you think about how you learned and what was important to you as an undergrad when you were 20 years old, compared to what you can know and learn in the classroom 20 years later as a 40-year-old or or 40 years later as a 60-year-old, it's like night and day. Because the older you get, the more you recognize, the less you know. And so just really just saying, okay, enough's enough. I'm going to leave the, the rat race of life and, and do what matters to me, which is to learn more. Going back to school then becomes something that is that permeates that individual. I mean, you know, the people that leave our program, their biggest thing is that they say that, you know, being gone from the program is they have withdrawal almost immediately. 
they say that being in that learning environment is so important. So we do have lifelong learning for our alum. We have them get back together in the classroom for advanced advanced negotiations and advanced business law and 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 people do come back to the classroom and they and they continue to network with their cohort and with other alumni in the program and it's not just about you know what you know what do you think of the football game it's about how can we learn from one another so that lifelong learning becomes so incredibly clear once people make the commitment to go back to school i believe you know, so much in it and love to see it in, in our students and our alumni. So go back to 20-year-old self, right? Because I know we would all listen, right, at yes. 20. But if there was, you knew that 20-year-old self would listen to just one thing you had to tell 20-year-old self, knowing what you know now, what would you tell 20-year-old self? <laughs> I I would this is this is tough because um, twenty or twenty year old self probably wasn't physically capable of understanding mentally what I would tell myself. But it it would be number one: the world is not black and white. There is lots and lots of gray, and it's very difficult to tell someone who's an accountant that there's a lot of gray in the world. So going through college, that's a tough sell. But but saying that those critical thinking skills and knowing what matters to deciding what is the correct decision or perhaps maybe not the be- next best, you know, or the worst decision you can make here, that there's a lot of gray in between. I think that that's one thing I would say. Give yourself the ability to recognize that it's not just a yes and no or a right and wrong. There's lots of space in between. But the other thing I'd say that I think that an 18-year-old really has a difficult time understanding is the implications of your actions matter in ways that you probably don't know and won't recognize for years. So it, it's, it's funny, Jeremy, because I told you at, at the beginning of this podcast that I teach the fellow students, the, the undergrads, the strategy. And, and then, of course, I also take, teach the executives. Well, the, the students that are undergrads have a very difficult time understanding strategy because strategy is all about making connections. So just like an 18-year-old might not understand the implication of, you know, jumping off a cliff into dark water at midnight in some area that's five miles away from the nearest hospital. They, they don't understand what might happen in that event, and somebody else might just jump in right after them. By the time they hit about 25, they start to make those brain, you know, the brain actually starts to make those connections and say, there's something that we, you might want to consider that this decision might impact the ability for, you know, the, the helicopter to come save you if you've hit a rock. And so just the ability to make connections, big picture connections, 
making those at a younger age would have been uh, phenomenal. Sound advice that we all wish we would have listened to when we were younger. <laughs> so people want to learn more about TCU's executive MBA. They want to learn more about you. How do, how do, how do they connect? Yeah. LinkedIn, email, what, 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 website? What's you, the best well, way? Well, you know it. We've got lots and lots of information on our website. And, and all you have to do is uh, do a search for TCU EMBA and, and it'll show up and you can just click right on and you get there's lots of video testimonials, there's information on our class curriculum, our faculty, our alumni advisory board. Jeremy happens to sit on our EMBA alumni advisory board and it and also the executive coaching experience that we give our students. All of those things are there on the website. I, of course, would be happy to speak with anyone. And if you want to email me directly, s.carter at tcu.edu. I'm happy to speak with anyone who's interested in knowing more about our program. And in case you missed any of that, didn't have the pen to write it down fast enough, you can always go to www.myexperiencedrealtor.com. That's experience with an ED. Click on podcasts. Go down to Suzanne Carter and hit click the read more. You'll you'll find the connections there. And of course, as always, if you need to find a trusted professional, no matter where you're going to buy and sell real estate on the planet, go to our homepage where you click on the find a trusted professional link and we will get you connected. Thank you for coming, Suzanne. Appreciate your time. It was great, Jeremy. Thank you.